You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rucks Across the Pond, coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me in Quebec, Canada still, is our Professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we have a pretty important show today, I believe. Yeah, I think so too, so do you want to just get right into it then? Yeah, absolutely. Our guest is Dr. Paul Luthi. Dr. Luthi is... The assistant is an assistant professor in pathology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He's also the associate director of the clinical microbiology lab at the University of Maryland Medical Center. Um, he's also a curler, and he was involved in a study that USA Curling just released regarding the spread of COVID-19 at USA Curling Club Nationals which was held March 7th through 14th at Potomac Curling Club in Laurel, Maryland. And Dr. Luthi, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, no problem. Happy to, to come on and talk to you guys. Before we get into this study, which I, I, I think it's extremely important, and I think it's vital information for, for clubs to read, for people putting on events to read, before we get, on, get into all that, let's, you know, let's talk about yourself. Um, you know, what's, what's your history with the sport of curling and how did, how did you get started curling? Sure. Yeah. So, um, my wife actually started curling way before I did. Um, when we were in graduate school in Dallas, um, she started at the Dallas Fort Worth curling club. Um, I was a hockey player. I had gotten roped in right in my last year of undergrad, um, to learn to play as adult with a bunch of friends from Michigan who were all hockey players and being poor graduate students, you know, I wanted to do curling. (laughs) <laughs> but we didn't have enough money to both be able and she wanted to learn how to play hockey. Um, and we just didn't have enough money to be able to do both. And so, uh, she did curling, I did hockey. And then we moved to Maryland when I did my, uh, clinical microbiology fellowship and she joined the DC club. Um, and it was really after the 2018 Olympics. And I know it sounds so cliche, but it was after the 2018 Olympics. I was just kind of hanging out with her. She asked one day cause uh, John Schuster was actually in Washington DC and had his medal and everything. And so they had gotten him to come out to the, the club and do a meet and greet. And so she's like, Hey, you want to go meet a gold medalist? I'm like, sure. And uh, met a bunch of cool people at the club and, and kind of had decided I didn't tell her there that, Hey, you know what? Now I've got a, a real job, have a little bit more money can afford to, to do that. Um, I'm going to start curling. So yeah, started right after the Olympics. So this is, would be uh, my third year starting this year, this fall. And I, I suppose you, you probably hoped that your professional life and your, your curling hobby would never intertwine, but, but here we are, right? Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in hindsight, maybe everyone, every curler in America getting to touch John Schuster's gold medal may not have been such a great idea. I wasn't, I mean, that was back in at the time. Yeah. yeah. It was like in May or something. So there's flu seasons done by that point. So yeah. it's not a big deal. Yeah. I just, I know I'm going to think twice about anything like that <laughs> for the rest of my life, probably. But, um, 
Okay, so t- talk a little bit about about your background and kind of what you do uh, for the University of Maryland School of Medicine for the the medical center there. Sure. So I, I have my PhD in microbiology. I got that at the UT Southwestern in Dallas. Um, and then after that, instead of doing like a traditional research fellowship or anything like that, I did um, a fellowship in clinical microbiology. So that was two years at the National Institutes of Health, uh, where you're in the clinical lab, you're learning how all the cultures are performed, how to interpret all of these, and then you get a lot of responsibility of learning to communicate these results with the physicians. Um, you learn a lot of medical information and about infectious diseases and, and how people get sick with these and what it means and how you can translate the microbiology to better patient care through those methods. Um, so after that, then um, I started a job in 2017 um, at the University of Maryland Medical Center. So I'm one of the directors of the micro lab. Uh, so I, you know, I do a lot of um, teaching as part of that um, uh, of residents, fellows, med students, um, and then running the lab is is a big part, and that is responsibilities of you know bringing in new tests, making sure our tests are are performing the appropriate way that they should be, um, communicating results to the doctors, and being really a resource for all the microbiology in the hospital, infectious disease testing that's there. Um, and then on the side, um, you know, my real job, the first one um, that the dean likes me to list is that I am the uh, I'm assistant assistant professor in pathology, so I do do research too. Uh, but just currently, uh, my primary responsibilities are are running the clinical micro lab. So, you you've had just a stressful year, I'm guessing. Uh, seven months, a stressful seven months. It hasn't really let go since March, like mid March after the the Rudy Gobert announcement. Everything kind of just disappeared into a black hole from that point. <laughs> so, I mean. Th- Take people through kind of what the what the day for for someone who who's on the I guess or near or on the front lines of this. Just take me through like what someone in your position goes through on a day to day basis while we're going through a pandemic like this. Sure. So um, right now, well, I can tell you what happened this morning. So you know, I I had a seven thirty a.m. phone call this morning. Um, as I had gotten in this up into the the hospital um, to talk about uh, potential new testing a platform for COVID nineteen that we're thinking about bringing on um, to help bolster our supply, um, and then shortly after that phone call was over, it, it involved uh, getting a a, week, a bunch of requests. Um, we have uh, multiple tiers of testing at our hospital uh, as a result of the shortage of supplies for doing testing. Um, and so we've, the way we've designed this is that, um, and the way the system and, and our incident command of, of uh, physicians has designed this is, um, depending upon the patient's indication, so uh, if it's just a 24-hour pre-op type surgery or um, they're asymptomatic being admitted to the hospital, they, they don't need their test result for COVID necessarily as fast as someone who comes in, uh, you know, it's in Baltimore, so it might be somebody who has been shot or stabbed. Hopefully not that, but it's somebody who has a critical surgery. And so we have a very small amount of very rapid one-hour PCR tests um, that we can do. And so it's it's limited to those. And so it is really sometimes it was meant to be cut and forward, but unfortunately um, not as always as straightforward as it can be. Someone might come in and they might be asymptomatic, but then do whatever their health circumstances are. They might uh, need to, to upgrade from a, a slower test to a much faster test. And so there's a lot of, of taking those and negotiating that. And so that generally happens in the morning. 
um, while also, you know, working through uh, normal laboratory running things, because we still do a lot of all the cultures, you know, someone has a UTI, we get the, the urine in the lab and have to get, diagnose that so that physicians can treat someone for a UTI. Um, and keeping that up and running, uh, bringing, we're always looking at bringing in potentially new data, uh, new new equipment based off of the current data and literature to show what's best for patient care. Um, so that's always running in the background. And then right now we've got a couple of, uh, we've got a resident and a pathology resident and uh, infectious diseases fellow rotating. So there's a lot of teaching involved with that as well. And also on the side of that, getting emails for a couple of research projects I'm working on at the same time uh, with some collaborators in the, the school as well. Okay. So let's take people back in time to, to March when club nationals was at Potomac curling club there in Maryland. Um, you said you, you, you told us before we started recording that you actually volunteered at this event. Is that right? I did. Yeah. It was uh, a, a big event needing lots of volunteers. Um, it's a week long event, so they needed uh, not only officials, but uh, timers and, Outside of that, which which you have to get some training for, if you guys have ever done your officiating course, I haven't. Um, so I was there to volunteer as a help with the ice making. They had brought in some ice makers um, from across the country to help with the ice all week, and so I I spent a lot of time helping with that. Um, they needed people to to wipe the rocks off. Um, they needed people to um, you know just keep the the rooms tidy and clean. So yeah, it was, it was a big effort of uh, a lot of volunteers. So th this is when things were just starting to warm up here in the States and you mentioned wiping off the rocks. Were there some COVID-19 protocols in place for this event? Yeah, there were. Um, about a week before the event or a couple of weeks before our club had instituted, our board had instituted um, protocols for, for our normal league play and we then carried those over. So it was you know, it was everything that you thought it was that we would do appropriate because at the time in March, you have to remember, we knew pretty much nothing about this virus. Mm -hmm. um, so we thought it was just going to be like the flu. And how do you handle the flu? Well, you, you wipe all the surfaces down as best as you can and you limit shared surfaces uh, as far as like touching. So we, we um, at the event, uh, we were serving, you know, small snacks, like little cups of cheese poofs, but they were in individual served small cups that you wouldn't be able to touch anybody else's cups and that sort of thing. We eliminated, um, normally at our club, we have a, a bunch of pitchers out on the, of water out on the, the ice sheet, um, on the catwalk. And those were taken away so that people couldn't touch those again. They had to bring their own water bottles. Um, and it, while we did not, um, prohibit handshakes or anything like that pre or post game, uh, we strongly uh, suggested that you do a, a broom tap or an elbow tap or a wink and a nod or something like that. Um, just because of, again, we thought it was like the flu. And so you don't want to touch hands. You don't want to touch surfaces, stuff like that. And when, when did you, when did everyone start to kind of realize that, that this disease had kind of made its way through the participants and the volunteers and the, the people involved in this event? I think it was probably later in the week. Um, you know, at, like you said, it, everything was still heating up. It started at the beginning of the week. Really, the only places that had COVID-19 in the U.S. was Seattle, mm -hmm. uh, Los Angeles, New York City. That was kind of it. And so no one thought it was anywhere else. We hadn't had a case yet in Maryland. Um, you know, the public health lab was the only one doing testing at the time. Um, 
So it didn't seem like it was a huge thing and they didn't, they thought it was a very limited spread. Um, but then it was really that, that Rudy Gobert moment, um, that Wednesday when the NBA shut down and then everybody else shut down when I think everybody started to realize, you know, holy crap, this is everywhere in the United States right now. And, and it's not just in those certain areas. And so there was probably some inkling that it could have been there. Um, we didn't know for sure. Um, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus that was playing. Um, cause we never asked anybody to, to report or say anything like that. And I, you know, you think you have the sniffles, all you got is flu. Um, so maybe, maybe there were people playing at the beginning. We don't know, um, if there were people sick at the beginning or if it was more towards the end. Um, but yeah, clearly based off of, of what we're here to talk about, uh, people were sick during the event. Yeah. And the, the argument as to whether or not they should have kept playing really isn't appropriate now. And in fact, you can go and you can find interviews with USA Curling CEO, Jeff Plush. I know that he talked with the guys at Extra Extra In podcast, I think specifically about this event uh, during his interview and just kind of the, the in the moment information that they had where they did decide to uh, play the event out to its conclusion. So when now, now talking about this, this, this research project that, that you were involved with, can you kind of talk about how you got involved with it and what um, kind of, kind of what the, what the purpose was and, and, uh, and everything leading up to getting the information together? After the event, and it had been a couple months after, it was me and a couple of friends from the club were, who are all scientists and so we're nerds and we like to know all these type of things. Um, we were like, huh, I wonder how many people actually got sick. You know, we, we figure there are a lot of players that got sick and we know anecdotally a bunch of, of volunteers that got sick um, that are friends of ours. And so we're curious just how much spread there really was completely through the event. Excuse me. And um, the problem was, is that nobody had, had put any effort out to do it. And so we're like, huh, you know what, you know, I, I've got me personally, I've got the ability to set up a, a study through the university you know, I wonder if uh, the school would, you know, not the school, I'm sorry. I wonder if uh, USA Curling and the, the club would allow us to do this. And, and uh, you know, we had heard from some players that they'd be really interested in this as well because they had anecdotally uh, kind of done an informal survey of themselves and found that their numbers for people that were sick were really, really high. Um, and that was, so that was a self-organized thing. We're like, huh, so, well, we've got the background data and, and we know that the players were really, really, like a lot of them got sick. So what if we looked at volunteers and looked at, you know, symptoms and just be kind of get some interesting information that that could be done through a simple like survey based research study um, that we could apply some simple statistics to uh, to show people what happened, you know, and what what the the precautions that we had at then, which, again, was just basically cleaning no masks because we didn't know about that or just just keeping things clean. Um, you know, is that a big problem? And, you know, we anecdotally know that it is but let's put it into a scientific study and show that it actually is and so how how did you guys collect your data sure so um this was put through uh the institutional review board of university of maryland school of medicine um so for those who might not know what that is it's basically a, a group of um, people including scientists non-scientists and non-university uh members who review any project that might have to do with human subjects research. 
um, and they look at it for efficacy and they look at it to make sure that privacy and rights and all the things that are really, really important for human subjects research are, are kept intact. Um, and so this study, because it was just going to be through a survey device and it was going to be completely anonymous, um, that got approved through that. And that was one thing that they really liked about that was, was those things and, and made it easy for them to approve. Um, so it was through a software that is used um, for a lot of uh, surveys as well as for, for human research that you can uh, collect kind of survey data or health information data if you were to use it for that. But we use it just as for survey data. Um, and we approached with the questions that we came up with and we approached uh, USA Curling and Potomac Curling Club and said, hey, you know, we want to do this study. Um, we're doing it through the University of Maryland. Um, they have approved it already as far as human safety research. They, you know, they say it's at this level um, and that it's all good to go. And that as long as we stay with this, it's going to be completely anonymous. Uh, nobody's going to be able to see whose results are whose. And we're not going to collect any uh, names or link them or anything like that. Um, as well as we're not going to collect any private health information. So those are all, you know, important aspects to keep in mind. Um, and so USA Curling and Potomac Curling Club were on board with this. You know, they wanted to know, have some have some uh, fact based research behind this and be able to say, um, you know, this is what happened and this is the data and this is stuff that people need to keep in mind. So we're really gracious with, to them because they they really helped out and they they gave us um, the email list for all the players and all the volunteers. Um, they of course gave the players and volunteers a chance to opt out, which was part of the requirements through the university. Um, but, you know, I can tell you, I don't think as far as I know, a single person opted out of the, of giving me their email address. Um, and so, yeah, then the email was, was loaded in, into the system. And then it basically put a big blind over everything and they were sent out a link to, to fill out this survey information. Um, and all I could see was whether or not people were responding and how many people had responded at all, um, until we closed it. And then we just had completely anonymized answers, um. That was great, and then we we applied statistics from there. Yeah, and your response rate was pretty incredible. Which I, so I just want to commend a few people here. One yourself for having the the foresight to go ahead and get this approved and make it all official, and then USA Curling and Potomac Curling Club because it, it would have been easy to to hide this because it's club nationals. It's not a well-known event. So to be willing to go ahead and, and, and approve this and say, you know, it, it's worth having the scientific data and the, and the, the end result that we can learn from. Uh, I, I think that's to be commended. And then anyone who responded, because at, like you said, it's, you have the option to opt out, uh, even if you, even knowing that, uh, that your, that your responses are going to be anonymous, it's real easy to opt out and not trust that, but, uh, tell everyone what your response rate was. Yeah. So there were total 187 people, uh, 88 players, 88 volunteers or officials or in some volunteer capacity. And then 11 people who volunteered their email address, even as spectators, um, after we had sent out the the email list. And so out of 187, we had 159 people reply, which is an 85% response. So that's, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, think of any yeah. survey that you get for the phone or anything else, and it's never nearly that high. So it was fantastic to see that high of a level. Yeah. So the, the numbers 
these results were sent to all of the clubs in USA Curling. Uh, the person from our club who distributed it out sent it out to all of us with just, well, this is terrifying. Um, <laughs> and the numbers, the numbers really do pop out at you. Um, of the people who responded to your survey, you had 56% that had symptoms of COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the interesting thing, I think with that, it's in one of the figures, um, in figure, uh, one, uh, it was really, you know, if you look at that majority of people had two or more symptoms, mm-hmm. it wasn't just one symptom. Um, and actually the, the curve, the, if you look at the graph, like a curve, it's actually centered around more like four or five symptoms, which is pretty scary. Yeah. And, and of those, of the 56% that had symptoms of that 56%, 38% of those included difficulty breathing as one of their symptoms. And this was back when, you know, back in March, it was a much, I mean, we didn't know anything about this virus. So that, I mean, that was the scary part was the difficulty breathing. And for, for over, well over a third of the people who had symptoms to have difficulty breathing, I mean, that's frightening. And it led to, you know, a, a bunch of people were sick for a really long time. That was the other thing was how long it took people to get over their symptoms, according to your study, and then four people getting hospitalized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the, the scary part. Yeah. Yep. What um, what other numbers do you think we, we should really pay attention to from from a, as, as we're thinking about opening up curling centers and as we're thinking about hosting curling events down the line? Well, I, I think you you're right there with the the timeline that it's taken people to to feel better, and so that that was one of the we put that in a figure, and we also I think we nope just in one of the figures. In figure two, um, we split it out between volunteers and and players and spectators, and we really you know on average we saw that it took about a whole month before a really the majority of chunk of people felt better, um, but it wasn't out of the average to to not feel better until maybe almost two months later. But the really the thing that really struck me was that they might have not had symptoms anymore after a month or two, but there were still multiple people who what they considered to be a uh, return to normal. So um, normal exercise activities mm-hmm. or normal ability to breathe, or um, maybe they had uh, other symptoms that were not normal that happened as a result. And we had people who at the time of the survey were still experiencing that issues. Um, that was over 150 days later. Wow. So 150 days. So basically four months, five months after there's, there's people that are still sick from this. Yeah. They're there. They, they still haven't felt like they can return to normal. Yeah. So they, they haven't regained their full cardiac function. And these, you know, this is a week long tournament. And while it's not the, the Briar or the U S nationals, right? Like this, these are people who are generally in better shape to be able to come and play a week full of 10 end games every single day. Um, so they're not in the worst shape of the, out of, out of all the curlers that are out there. So for that, for people to, to not be able to feel like they could jump on the ice and play a bunch of games or, or feel like they could even some, we've heard some comments from people that they anecdotally that they, they had trouble, you know, just normal daily activities before they had difficulty uh, getting a full lung function as far as breathing and stuff like that, um, that, that, that is something that is very, you know, surprising and how much long it has lasted for people. So one of the things that jumps out from the stats to me is, and to have a scientist on to actually give a scientific answer. We hear a lot in the media about 
asymptomatic spreaders and people who they may have been exposed to the virus, but they don't show any symptoms. Is there any sense or any like kind of definite answers now in the literature about what percentage of people are asymptomatic with COVID? Um, it's difficult to say, um, simply just because people who are asymptomatic most likely aren't going to go out and get a test, right? Yeah. If you don't have a fever, if you're not having a cough or anything like that, and you're feeling fine, there's no reason for you in probably in your mind to think, oh, I need to go get a, a COVID test. So I think the true number is probably obscured based on that um, happening and, and people not getting tests for that. Hmm. I mean, part of the reason why I'm asking is I'm just wondering if basically everyone at this event got COVID. If it's if it's like a 30 or 40 percent asymptomatic rate, and it's like 50, it sounds like 50 to 60 percent got some kind of symptomatic of uh, some comes kind of symptoms of COVID. It almost seems like this event. It's like if you were there, there's a good chance you caught it, right? Like like it's, it's already better than 50 percent chance you caught it, but perhaps ev- just everyone was exposed. Is that potentially? Kind of the, yeah, and and we we actually so we asked people. Um, you know, did you get an antibody test later um, at any time? And what was the antibody test result? Because even if they didn't have symptoms, I guess this would approach it too. Then if you didn't have symptoms, you know, a lot of people may have gotten an antibody because they were there or because, you know, uh, Red Cross in the United States was doing free antibody testing every time you donated blood. Um, so we actually saw that and we we saw that um, like for the players, 50% of the players were positive for antibodies. And that makes sense because we saw... Um, as far as positive tests, um, 38% of the players were considered presumptive positives because they weren't tested, but they had signs and symptoms. And then 34% of the players were positive by a viral test. So, you know, that was likely, but then with the volunteers, you know, it's interesting. We have, um, for the antibodies, most people, 50% weren't tested, uh, but only 18% of those who were tested, um, were positive, whereas the, the 8% were negative. So while we don't have the full numbers, I mean, it could be that, um, but I can tell you just based off my own personal experience, since I, I volunteered there on Sunday, the first Sunday of the event, um, and I was there from eight in the morning until 8 p.m. at night, and I did not get COVID. Okay, so um, you, you never got COVID. Okay, I never I did. Yeah, and my antibodies were negative and, and all of that. Um, I know people very close to me who got COVID, um, but they happened to be there later in the week um, and volunteered from basically Wednesday through the end of the event. Wow. So. I mean, there's a couple of things that, that jump out. So we've, Ryan and I have actually both played at the Potomac Curling Club, so I know the facility not super well, but I know it well. Is So one thing is the warm room there, I'd say, is not that large, right, if, if memory serves? Yeah, it's it's not. It's not the not the uh, Taj Mahal of, of warm okay. rooms. But. And so, so it was fairly crowded it's, on the inside. and then obviously It's a nice course. room. It's just yeah, close not, quarters. Yeah, it's close quarters. <laughs> right? and, then, and then also the, the sheets, four sheets, it's a four-sheet club, but if all four sheets are in play, in my mind, you've got a big event going on. I imagine it's actually really crowded, right? Yeah, space space in a, in a bond spiel over a weekend can sometimes be something that is at a premium. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And so I'm wondering, again, this again is kind of like, getting a scientist on and kind of get, especially someone who's kind of studied the curling aspect of it. It seems like exactly what you said early on, the big concern was with touch and a lot of the guidance around return to play has been about wiping down surfaces, not using scoreboards, all this stuff. But it sounds like from what you're saying in the, in the study and also a bit more that's coming out in the scientific, I guess, press lately, the bigger issue might more, be more like ventilation 
how close people are breathing and kind of screaming and yelling. Is that, is that what you, what you see as one of the takeaways from this study? Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we didn't investigate really, um, where, and this is one limitation, we didn't, we didn't look to see with the volunteers what type of volunteer activity they had. Um, you know, whether this was primarily a warm room activity or on the ice activity. Um, and that would have been a nice thing, I think, to kind of look at to see uh, where people were and if they had gotten sick, you know, where did they, did it happen out in the ice shed? Did it happen in the warm room? Um, but, you know, we can look at the players and the players were on the ice all the time. And then they were in the warm room for a little bit. And, and this is being a tournament that's a little more serious than your average weekend bond spiel. You know, there was some socializing afterwards, but it wasn't, you know, like a, a, a rager that you could have on a weekend bond spiel where you're there till three in the morning playing uh, shut the box or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, you know, it, what that says is, is um, people who spent a lot of time together out on the ice um, and a little bit of time out in the warm room um, had a potential to spread it between each other, especially people who were right around each other face to face and, and spent two hours frequently with the same people out on the same ice sheet over and over again. And I do want to talk about the volunteers and, and officials, because as people talk about, you know, let's, let's go ahead and have the Briar and the Scotties. Let's make sure that we get the world's going. Um, and a lot of the focus is on, oh, well, we can keep the players safe. Well, it, it's, there's more than just the players at an event. And like you said, the, this disease also went through the officials and volunteers that were there. And when you think about your, your base for volunteers and officials, people who are able to take an entire week off to volunteer at an event are usually going to be older because they're probably going to be retired. And looking at your response numbers, the far and away, the largest percentage of 55 to 88 year olds among your respondents were among the officials and the volunteers. Um, I, I mean, does, does that just put even more importance, like even beyond keeping the players safe, that really even more important than that is keeping the officials and the volunteers safe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think I have to say that the, the volunteers are the lifeblood of any tournament and any curling club out there. Um, and so if you, if your volunteers are getting sick, um, that's, that's not a good thing. And so what, what did, what did we see at, at, at club nationals as far as, as far as the virus making its way through the volunteers and officials, it looks like the rate wasn't as high as it was among the players, probably because they weren't in the, in the warm room or right, not yeah. in the, not in the dressing room. Right. Yeah. So the, it could be that. And, you know, another thing with the volunteers and players that we saw, um, and this is in, uh, which figure figure three that I, I, it's one that I really quite enjoy. Um, we separated out symptomatic and asymptomatic volunteers and we kind of did a heat map of how many days they were there. Mm -hmm. They were there. Um, and so what we saw is with those who were symptomatic, they tended to be people who had, uh, multiple days of volunteering. Um, so they, you know, we have people who are there every single day of the week or three days a week or more. Um, and it also happened to be people who are there towards the end of the week. Uh, whereas you look at the asymptomatic volunteers and there tend to be people who are there uh, generally just a couple of times and more towards the beginning mm -hmm. of the week. And so I think what it shows is it's the repeated exposure was something that, that really put the volunteers at risk um, and probably put the players at risk too. Um, when we put the map up, for the players, there's really no no major differences uh, because most people were symptomatic and then they were all there all week. So it's not mm -hmm. something you can really pull apart. 
But with the volunteers, yeah, the, the more you were there and the, the more towards later of the week, the higher at a risk it looks like of potentially contracting the disease you were. So what do you think the takeaway messages are for, um, I guess, return to play? So I, I guess, first of all, do you think curling clubs should reopen during the pandemic? I think that's the bigger, bigger question. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, it's a really hard thing for me to, to think about. Um, I'm on our club's uh, COVID committee. They're actually having a meeting right now at the same time. So my, my wife is on the board and is leading that committee. Um, so she was, was making fun of me a little bit about to, to get out of that meeting to, to be on this interview. <laughs> um, but, As a former curling club board member, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we've been looking at things, you know, and so our, our club, I'll just say Potomac Curling Club is, is closed until January. Um, this was after our group gave a recommendation to the board of saying that we should close until January. And this was then voted upon by the board. And, um, they, they made this decision about a month ago. Um, and at that time, uh, we were seeing percent positive rates in our area above 6% in Maryland. It was hovering right around that. Um, which is it, this percentage is a kind of a surrogate that WHO uses for, for transmission it's one of the measures they use. They also use some others. Um, and then, you know, we draw from, from Northern Virginia as well as DC. And while DC was, was looking pretty good, Northern Virginia, uh, Brian, I don't know if, if you, how much you track that, but they were some areas, the whole state was 11% positivity and like Alexandria and around those areas were hovering around 78% sense, uh, positivity. And so we, we just didn't think with, with our members coming from everywhere that it would be a good idea to, to endanger everybody generally just, the whole community. Um, and so we, you know, and we're, we're still trying to figure out the things that really matter for making a curling club safe. And I think from the study, the number one thing you can say is just cleaning, no masks, having a bar open, having food open, um, and playing with two sweepers, like normal curling with just extra cleaning. It doesn't work. Um, it's, it's prime for the virus, you know, like you mentioned, Jonathan, the, the latest literature says that it, it can spread more through air and inhalation than it does on droplets on surfaces. Um, and there's some evidence to show that it might be, in some instances, um, uh, aerosolized virus, so an airborne virus, though it doesn't seem to do that as well as, as it does for more like droplets and people coughing and sneezing and then you inhaling those within a six-foot radius. Um, so it it's, it's concerning. Um, and, you know, really what curling clubs have going against them is that they're indoors. Um, the advantages of a lot of the things over the summer, golf and other stuff like that, is they've been outdoors. And that's something the CDC and a lot of the health organizations have recommended is get outdoors if you can. Um, and another concern with curling clubs is a lot of them due to, you know, wanting to have good ice, the air handling is recirculation. Um, because you don't want to bring in too much outside air because then you, you can risk, uh, causing your ice to have weird falls and runs. And at least that's what, what our ice makers tell me as I'm trying to learn to, to be a better ice maker. Um, so it, it, it's things that are concerning. Um, and so that's why I say, I, I don't really know. Um, we see clubs that are open in the U S um, we see clubs that are open in Canada. We see clubs across the world that are open. And they're using varying forms of the different ways to have protection. You know, U.S. is pretty much mandatory masks, it looks like. And as far as we've heard, it 
looks like it's okay. Um, I just, I'm not sure just because there's no real data, you know, curling, unfortunately, is such a niche sport that people haven't really looked into it that much. Um, and so I hope it's okay. I'd, I'd like to curl. Um, I thought I'd like everybody to be safe as well. How much of it really does depend on where in the world you are? Because obviously there are COVID-19 hotbeds and there are parts of the world that are doing a lot better. And what, if you're, if you're in a place that's a hotbed, like what are some of the numbers, like you mentioned, percentage of positivity that you should pay attention to, to determine if it, if it's safe for your club to reopen? Yeah. So I, I think that's going to play a major issue. Um, some numbers, so percent positivity rate is one thing you want to look at. Um, another thing you want to look at, there's a, a metric that's the percent positive, or not percent positive, but the number of positive per 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be the new metric that's being used more often as more testing is coming online. I mean, I said at the beginning that we have a shortage of tests. We still do, um, but more and more are coming available. More people are getting tested. Um, especially compared to March, uh, the week after club nationals in March, we were able to do, I think basically 10 tests a week. So that was the total. And we're putting out, um, uh, probably around a thousand a day right now out of the hospital. Um, so numbers have much increased, but then as you, you know, just basic percentage in maths, anytime you, you increase your, your denominator, um, your percentage can go down. Um, but you, so yeah, you want to look kind of like at a local area of the, the, percent positive, the number positive per 100,000. Um, so those are so, things that they consider to be, that WHO really considers to be indicators of, of uh, areas that have reduced transmission. So what's what's the threshold? Because I think in the UK, they tend to report a number per 100,000. So I know in Southampton, it got down to six per 100,000 in the summer, but now it's back up into the like 60 or 70 per 100,000. Yeah, I think it's something like, for that one, I think, because we haven't really used that one as much, so I'm not as familiar. Um, I think it's something around 10 or 20, I believe, is is the number you want to be at. Um, I know, I think it was New York City and New York, when they were putting the, the bans on certain states, it was 10, you had to be under 10 per 100,000. Wow. Um, so that seems, I believe that's the number you want to use. If you're looking at percent positivity testing, it was 5% was the threshold to be used. Um but now that in testing has increased, um, that numbers can go down, but it's also a thing showing that there's less positive people as well. So it, it's kind of get to look at all the numbers and take them all in together and, and kind of look at them, it, not as a single anymore, but all of them as composite. Hmm. So let's say a rink, let's say, let's assume that a rink does reopen. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I started off, I kind of vassal back and forth. Ryan's been COVID pessimist from the beginning, and perhaps he's always been right. Uh, but I will say that everything I've signed up for this year has so far been canceled. So I'm kind of now at the point that it just will be decided. But let's say a rink does um, decide to reopen and it's one of our listeners wants to go curling. What What's your recommendations if they want to do it but still want to be safe? Uh, yeah, so mask 100%. You know, to me, mask is not a political issue. I hope it's not for anybody else who's listening. Masks have been shown there's so much literature now to show that they are effective at reducing not only the spread to others, that was the primary reason for putting them out, but there's also now data to show that they have an effect on protecting you from others. Um, so masks would be the main thing. If you if your league or your club doesn't have a mask, I would not show up, like if it doesn't have a requirement. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be my number one recommendation. 
Um, another thing you might want to have is, and I've seen a lot of clubs implement this, um, is some sort of form of contact tracing or, or attendance so that if somebody were to find out like a week later that, you know, I, I attended Tuesday night league and a couple days later I tested positive, then they have a way to contact back to the club and let everybody know on that Tuesday night league that somebody was there that was positive. So I guess it is, this is going to depend on the region, right? Because in Canada, there's contact tracing app and the UK there is. I know. Did you follow the story out of the the Bonspiel in Kitchener Waterloo two weekends ago, where the event was canceled in the playoffs? Oh or? yeah, I, I followed that. We so any curling there, I can watch right now. That's all we're trying to. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there, one of the things they did is required everyone to have the contract contact tracing app on, right? So, mm-hmm. so is it, would that be a good protocol then for clubs to put in if there's a contact tracing app in the area? Or yeah, I think that would be great. Um, to, to have either the app or, you know, I know a lot of clubs have, have put in some good measures. They're trying to figure that out. That's one thing we're trying to figure out is if we decide to open January, how can we do something like that? Um, so yeah, I, I definitely a hundred percent agree on, on the contact tracing. And, and really the best practice would be to have that downloaded 14 days before stepping on the ice, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess the other question is, um, not just contact tracing, but numbers, right? So I, I know that some, we had a, a, a rink owner from Scotland on a few episodes ago, Mike Ferguson, and he was talking about how they were looking at maybe trying triples and doubles as opposed to regular four-a-side curling just to reduce the number of people in the shed at any one time. Do, do you think that's also an effective measure or does it not matter as much? I, I, I think it could be. Um, again, the, the major things you want to stay away from um, I mean, I like the way the CDC puts it. They say the best way to avoid getting the virus is to avoid the virus completely. So, you know, that means not going to indoor places where there's going to be a crowded amount of people. So that if you're going to have to be indoors, fewer amount of people is probably going to be a lot better than if you were to have a full amount of people inside of a building uh, for two hours or however long the, the league draw is going to be. And are, are there any other recommendations you'd you'd uh, think of for a club or, or a team that's kind of thinking of curling again? Um, you know, uh, what I asked I, I asked infection control people the other day some things that they could do. They said uh, air handling is is important. So if you can get your your club air handling so that um, you're maximizing the number of air changes in the, in the club and maybe increasing your filtration. Those are things that are going to be important. Um, I think limiting, if you're, if you're a team that's going to play limiting your, your bubble, you know, is something we hear a lot. I mean, that's just not for teams, but for everybody limiting your bubble to, to the amount of people that you see. And, and really you have to get really intimate with everybody in the way that you got to know every person kind of that they're seeing and they have to be open about it. And, did they open their bubble a little bit up to, for someone who might be more risky? And if that's the case, then you have to be able to accept that risk that someone might have, um, you know, exposed themselves through a risky behavior. And so if you can minimize that by having a tighter bubble and um, for your team or for the group of people you're going to curl with, that would always be better too, I think. Hmm. So maybe not subbing all the time. If you're going <laughs> to play, just play with one team and uh, that's who you play with. Right, yeah. So I guess the other the other big question everyone has is when is the pandemic going to end? <laughs> so and I'm not sure, I mean, because it's a little bit of an unfair question because obviously nobody knows, but um, what's your sense? Like, do you, it's just this like, like the most pessimistic version is like, this is just the new normal and it could go on for years. 
some people are very optimistic there's going to be a vaccine in the next month or so, and that'll be kind of a real game changer. What's what's your sense of what it's going to take to end the pandemic and get us back to normal-ish, at least for curling, for curling's sake? Um, so I think right now what we're seeing, if we just want to talk about current state, um, we're starting to see potentially the second wave coming everywhere. Um, that's where we're seeing the rise of cases. And this was predicted to come around this time. Actually, I think it was actually predicted to come in November. So it's maybe a little early. Um, but from what I have been hearing from my, my ID fellow, my infectious disease friends and epidemiology friends is, you know, this is going to carry into next year. Um, a vaccine probably is not going to be ready until maybe next spring at the earliest, um, we're probably going to, and then it's going to have to be rolled out, right? So that the the vaccine, there's not going to be enough for everybody. And so you you might have seen, the, depending on your, your country's plan, I know in the U.S., the, the first responders and the frontline healthcare workers would get that. So that doesn't include me. I'm, I'm in the lab, so I'm not front line, healthline. Those guys are, are doing way more risky stuff than I am. Um, and then it's going to go to the, the elderly who would be the most at risk. And then it would go to, to the next more risky group. And really young people are going to be the, the last to get it. So from what I've heard, if there, if a vaccine can get out by next spring, it won't be probably until really the start of next curling season in the fall that is a vaccine is really widespread. Um, and so it might not be until next fall that it's really under control or much more under control. Hmm. Uh, we might see waves go up and down of it like we're seeing right now. Um, but as it goes into the winter, the biggest issue is that people are going to be inside seeing each other more instead of being able to go outside and, and uh, do activities outside where there's more airflow and, and the virus doesn't have a chance to, to linger in the air as much um, as it would in an indoor facility. So that's where there's the concern with the second wave of all of this happening. How much would greater access to higher speed or high response testing or quick response testing, you know, how much would that help us not necessarily return to normal, but get to the point that we can have, you know, larger events, curling events, club sports, that kind of, that kind of thing. I think, I mean, I think if there was a way to get tested for everybody, it would help for everything, um, including club sports. Um, you know, one thing though we talk about in, in my field is that, is that testing is not going to get us out of this pandemic um, because the test tells you at a certain point of time, you know, say somebody presents um, a couple days before a tournament and they're negative on the test. Well, that the data has shown that people might be either asymptomatic at that point and they have a very low amount of virus in their nasal passages. Um, and so they might be negative on a test that way. And then a couple of days later, they then are positive and exhibit, start exhibiting symptoms. So it's, it's not always perfect, unfortunately. Um, so really, the way that's going to get out of this is, is, is a combination of tests and then people then in, uh, enacting uh, infection prevention measures like wearing a mask, washing your hands, keeping surfaces clean, avoiding large groups. I mean, if, if everybody could buy into that, um, you know, I heard something and read a report that if, if everyone could have bought into that back a couple months ago in the U.S., we could have... Of, really knock things down in a matter of just the course of a month to two months uh, to a much, much better state than we're at right now. Do you think it's possible now or is it just too oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm an optimist in this. I, I hold out hope that we're going to be able to do this. So if everybody could, could again, with combination of testing, then everybody takes it seriously, wears a mask, go with all the, the 
washing your hands, going with all the infection prevention measures, staying avoiding crowds. Yeah, we could, we could, after a couple of weeks, you really knock this thing down. It won't go away out there. I mean, I think this thing is probably going to become, my guess, my hypothesis is that this thing is going to become like a seasonal flu. Um, you know, don't quote me on this because I, it's not data, but I would guess that you'd have to get a shot probably every year, maybe with this or um, with your flu shot every year going into the future. But um, that would be like the best case scenario after all this were to happen is you get knocked down enough to a level, we get a vaccine. And then it just kind of circulates and, and kind of becomes one of the respiratory diseases that comes every every year. Hmm. So it doesn't really go away. It just becomes, I, I guess this is, that's kind of what happened with the Spanish flu, right? The 1918 right. flu. It's it's kind of out there, but eventually, I guess, t- between us adapting to it and it adapting to us, it's it's less deadly. Is that the... Right. And, and as we, we learn how to treat it and... Um, it gets less deadly. I mean, we the number of deaths have gone down quite a bit because now we we have a couple of therapies that we think that uh, can help with the severely ill patients, um, and and really help with with them limiting disease. And so that's that's something that's great. And I mean, again, it's people. One of the things, even though it's felt like five years or whatever, it's only been seven months, and this is amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. We've never seen anything like this before as far as the speed of how we're learning all these things in healthcare and, and learning these treatments and, and diagnostics and I mean, even the vaccine trials. So it, it really is, is a, a marvel of modern medicine right now. Yeah. I think even like some treatments, right? Like the, the Regeneron treatment, that's mm-hmm. like, I guess we're seven months from diagnosis to having whatever, whatever it was the president took, right. That's apparently, I mean, again, I would say what scientists reports actually supposed to be one of the more promising treatments, although it hasn't been through all the testing. Yeah, it hasn't right? been through, but it's it's. Um, I think that it's that that looks very promising. I mean, knowing that dexamethasone, so the steroid um, treatment, can really help patients who are who are very very ill. That that's a big huge game changer. I mean, it's something that nobody thought about in the beginning, and now we have that, and so that's going to change a lot of things going forward. I think. Well, at least that's, I mean, those are the positive signs to take yeah. away, right? So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I guess that the takeaway is this season's, you know, if it, if it happens, it's not going to be a normal season, but I think everyone knew that already. And it sounds like the time, the realistic timeline for ending the pandemic and getting sort of back to normal is probably still another, another year away. But it also sounds like there's a lot of uh, positive developments on the horizon too. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. And who knows, you know, maybe again, it's only been seven months. Who knows what we're going to see in January, right? Like, I, I hope people stay optimistic, you know. Who knows what brand new things might come up at the beginning of the year that could could change the whole course of this. I mean, it, this is just amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what else could it be? Like, I, I guess, because for us that, that aren't scientists, we're just, we're just going off the news and it's like, it's basically... When's the vaccine going to come is kind of the, the constant drumbeat and a little bit about therapies. But are, are you aware of other things that are potential uh, game changers in terms of, of uh, ending the pandemic or kind of minimizing its its deadliness? Well, I, I think the vaccine is probably the biggest one, to be honest. And it, while while the, I know that they're going to do the best they can in this and I, I don't want them to rush at all. It's just amazing that they were able to develop a vaccine in, in three months' time to get that going and get the trial started in, in May. Um, 
So it could be very possible that we have enough short-term data, at least, to show that the vaccine is, is very effective. Um, you still want a lot of the long-term data because you want to make sure it, it lasts and you want to know how long it lasts and if there's any long-lasting side effects. But that could be one thing. Um, you know, there's, there's constantly folks working on new, um, new methods of detection. So as new test methods come out, um, are these things that can be implemented so that we can have cheap rapid tests? I mean, you know, that could be something that changes something as well. If you get a very cheap and sensitive uh, rapid test, could it be something that businesses could purchase a whole bunch of these? And as you walk in the door, you get a test done. Um, and 15 minutes later, you know whether or not you're positive or not. And that could be something, you know, maybe a curling club could have a, a rapid testing procedure. Um I'm not saying that this is coming, but these are all things that could, I mean, could happen in that amount of time sometime next year in the early spring or late winter. Maybe these are developments that could happen. Um, and then treatments. Yeah, there's there's constant research going on right now. I know there's a, a, a professor at, at my university who works on coronaviruses. And so as soon as the pandemic struck, he was doing studies looking for novel treatments and um potential drugs that we're already using for other diseases and treatments right now that can be repurposed and used for treating COVID-19 so that it wouldn't be take as long to go and reformulate the drugs and to, to have to, to find a whole brand new way to, to test this in people. We already know the side effects in people, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think the rapid testing is becoming more available and there there are some companies the the ones that are the most important ones on the supply chain I think are the ones that are that are getting the rapid testing for their employees uh to get them um to get them on the on the supply chain to make sure that we we don't have anything like our our or toilet paper shortage that we had but <laughs> I mean I I I am thoroughly impressed with the way that the scientific community has come together to try to get solutions to this problem. And the fact that we are as close to having a vaccine approved as we are is super impressive for seven months. It's just, we, the, the reason I was always pessimistic about this season is it's just the concept of time. Like even if they, even if they get their vaccine approved tomorrow, it's going to be six months before it's readily available. It's going to be nine months before someone like me is able to go into a CVS and, and get a vaccine. So it's it's just having that concept of time that has led me to believe that this season, like, let's not get our hopes up about it. I hope it doesn't stay that way. But it, yeah, that might just be the way that it is for this year, unfortunately. See, Jonathan, you got us all positive and then I drug us right back down. <laughs> I mean, I, I do. I honestly do think like, from my experience with this, and it's kind of funny to go back to what Paul said originally, my experience was very similar. The last thing I did before lockdown was play in the, the England mixed nationals. And it was the exact same thing. It was kind of, there's this whole like dread this weekend was that that weekend was, should we even be playing? What's the proper safety protocols? To be frank, the only thing being done was, uh, I can't remember the name of the chemical. It's like uh, D, D9 or something. They'd go in and they'd spray down the, the stone handles with that. And that was kind of seen as the preventative measure. We were still shaking hands because actually the last, I remember the last handshake I, I gave to anyone this year <laughs> was to my buddy James. Uh, when we played him in our last game. It's the last time I've shaken someone's hand. Is at the end of a curling game, right? And then, sure enough, a week later, England was locked down. Um, so, 
uh, very kind of a very similar experience. And I, I kind of think back and wonder, you know, if we just dodged a bullet, that we're just lucky that nobody at that tournament happened to be spreading COVID that saved us from kind of having a similar fate as the club nationals. Because honestly, we weren't doing anything different. We weren't, we weren't, even, we weren't even separating food from cups. Let's put it that way. You guys were probably doing more, more, uh, kind of more effective uh, kind of anti-disease measures. Yeah. So, yeah. And we thought they were going to be effective. We just didn't know. Yeah. And I mean, so I sit on the council for the English Curling Association. And we meet every month. And all we've done so far is cancel every single event. We're on a rolling, we're basically a rolling 90-day decision point for each event. Like basically, we look 90 days out and then make a final decision 60 days out. And so far, it hasn't really been a close call. Like, it's just been, well, we can't, this one's not possible to run. This one's not possible to run. Um, we don't really have anything else scheduled till January, late January. But um, you know, I think you know, I think barring barring some kind of game changer in the next six weeks, I think the the January and February events are also pretty unlikely to run. Thank you, Dr. Luthi, so much for joining us. Thank you for for all that you're doing at University of Maryland to keep us safe, even though you say you're not on the front lines, um, you're, you're still doing more than I am to try and keep everybody safe. And thank you for taking the time to, to produce uh, this report, which can be found on usacurl.org. Um, I think that everyone, you know, every curling club in the world and everyone thinking about running a curling event needs to look through this thing. Yeah, thanks. And it's also, I mean, you, you mentioned it was, um, it was sent out to all the clubs. So yeah, all the club presidents, um, it was sent to by uh, USA Curling. So if you, if you haven't seen it yet from your club, you can just ask your club president. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at curlingpodcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at rocksacrossthepond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.